you know, Dreamville and TDE is where backpack raps live now. You know, like that's they got a lock on that. And I, I mess with that. Backpack raps? Yeah. Sorry, I'm uncultured. What is backpack raps? I, I'm not gonna go into the real definition, but like what I think is just like, you know, it's a it's a more nerdy, <laughs> more you Yo, know. you sound you sound like my man. You sound like my man when he was like, "What is critical race theory?" <laughs> my man was like, "Well, you see, what do you think critical race theory is?" <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it's just backpack backpack rap is one of them things that nobody like. There's a definition for it, but it's not like Webster Dictionary approved, you know. All right, so welcome to episode seven. Are we in seven now? Lucky seven, definitely. Number of completion. Mm-hmm. Number of completion. Um, you know, I'm not ready yet, so that's a wrap. We'll have to keep. That's cooking. a wrap on this podcast, everyone. <laughs> thanks for <laughs> thanks for listening. Come out with seven seven slaps, and we out. You know. <laughs> yeah, you know. All right, but uh, welcome to episode seven. My name is Joseph James. Uh, this is Caleb Roberts, and this is Julian Owens. That's complete. All right. Uh, but no, we, we do need to complete this episode, uh, which is kind of a part two on to uh, what we were talking about in episode five, which was proximity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in this episode, we really want to kind of complete that conversation with the idea of probability, because those two things go actually really hand in hand when we're talking about issues of racial disparities, um, issues of, you know, not, not even just racial disparities, disparities, but you know, whether it be gender, uh, whether it be wealth, whatever it might be, um, those two things often are how we need to think about it and talk about it. So I know we've been talking about this a lot over the last two weeks, and, uh, I'm curious to know, where do you think probability really comes into this conversation and, and what are some things that we should be thinking about, uh, when we're talking about the, the outcomes for people? Yeah, Joseph, I think probability probability is really important uh, as a follow up to proximity. Uh, proximity, you know, we really talked about if you're close to people, are you close to the opportunities that you really want? But probability talks about is it even possible for you to get there or how possible is it? How much work will it take you to get somewhere? And those are the conversations that we never really have around uh, how our society moves. Um, and we've seen recently that Tim Scott has come out and said America isn't a racist country. And Kamala Harris uh, followed up and agreed with that slightly. And check uh, the United Amends Project uh, Instagram page uh, for our post where we talk about um, politicians who've said similar things. Uh, and I think it's just important because that framing was so odd to me, you know, just saying America isn't racist in the conversation around it. And I think what I want to break down today in terms of how we talk about probability is when you look at the the last 50 years of American history, do we really think America has gotten better in terms of, uh, you know, racial things, uh, social justice things? Uh, how has America really do you believe America has really progressed in the last 50 years? So I, I think a lot of people get hesitant about wanting to say, like, yeah, America is better than it was. Um you know, I think people are on two sides of this. Some people are like, obviously it's better. And other people are like cautiously saying it's better or they don't want to admit that it is because there's a fear that people get complacent or people just think everything's resolved now. And so I think we always have that issue of 
people feeling like a job is complete. We saw that with kind of, you know, Obama's presidency. It's like, oh, we got a black, we have a black president, so everything must be better now. And I think if you actually study the ways racial tension and racial uh, policy, ra- uh, racial, racialized policy has worked historically, um, I think what happens over time is that people who seek to have disparate outcomes between races become better at camouflaging how they do that. So, you know, if we start, you know, at the very beginning, we'll say slavery is so clearly a racist system, right? Um, it, it's clear you put black people, you know, in a, in a position of slave, you put white people in a position of power. It's clear. There's no questions. Right. And then we've seen that evolution where, you know, we have this, this evolution that actually we even talk about today where we talk about like, what well, was the civil, was the civil war over states rights or uh, the right to slavery? I'll tell you it's slavery, but the the conversation gets changed at like, oh no, well, we are trying to empower states to to move how they wanted to. And we'll see the same thing with things like the New Deal and how power given to states allowed for more racist implementation of uh, you know, jobs, of uh social programs and, and securities for people. And so I think nowadays we've done a great job of legislating things out that are clearly on the books as racist. And I think that is a powerful and important step. And I'm not going to gloss over it and say that, um, you know, it's worse as a result, but I think we have to be really diligent about the fact that, you know, these covert systems or these systems that are going to layer different odds and outcomes on people still exist. And if we don't eradicate those and start to start to deal with those, then the system might work in the exact same way as it did originally. Yeah, Joseph said something very important in all of that, and is that things haven't necessarily gotten worse. And I think that's kind of where I stand on this. I, I, I have a hard time saying that things are getting better because as society has evolved, so has the issues within the society that's evolved. For instance, I just got through reading The Miseducation of the Negro by Dr. Carter G. Woodson. Uh, I highly recommend everybody read it, especially black people, just to understand some of the things that we're dealing with in our society, especially in public education. But my point is that book was written in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the things in that book are still very relevant in today's day and age. Um, And so it's hard to say like, like, yes, we've gotten better. Like we there's there's obvious ways that we have gotten better. But because there's still a lot of issues that aren't at the surface, um, it's just really hard to say, yeah, yeah, we're, we're making tons of progress. And when I'm talking about kind of the evolution of things as well, I'm, I'm talking about the, the evolution of law being what's used to determine outcomes for people. Um, and so I'm going to use my home state for an example. South Carolina hasn't had a, a governor who's been educated outside of a segregated um, school schooling and school experience, because if we go back, the most recent governors that have you know had uh, public educations are all old enough that they were you know at a time where the schools were still segregated. And then we look at Nikki Haley, and she was educated in a white flight school. And so you have these instances where you're like, okay, on on the books we shouldn't have these outcomes that you know you're going to have these racial disparities. But when you look at, you know, how people are moving, the types of people that come to power, the ways in which things are established, there are still a level, there's still a level of interconnectivity within social communities that can segregate themselves from other facets of society. Yeah, I hear both of you in talking about uh, 
how things have changed in the last 50 years, I think some of the strengths tend to be overstated into what it actually means. Uh, I think as a community, especially when we talk about black communities um, and brown communities to some extent, you look at things like educational attainment as something that is supposed to deliver you uh, from the status that you were in before. And we'll see a bunch of uh, black and brown people go to school, get uh, degrees, secondary education, start their lives. And that to us is a symbol of success. And I think we've been kind of fooled into believing that these are end goals. Mm. These are not end goals. They're means to an end. And we haven't completed that circle yet. For example, black home ownership has not risen in the last 50 years. And it has risen, but it's come back down to where it was 50 years ago. And I think that is a critical part of of where we're at as a society. In the 60s, where the Fair Housing Act was uh, passed, supposed to give black people access to uh, home ownership opportunities. 50 years from that point, we have not had a statistical difference in the amount of black people owning homes. And we've talked about in last and other podcasts how we even as a black community buy our first home with more debt and at a lower value than our white counterparts. And this brings me to the point of introducing a document that I think is critical to understanding race, uh, economics, and how it's changed over time and our perspectives on it. Uh, the document is The Myths of the Racial Wealth Gap by Dr. William Sandy Darity and Derek Hamilton and others. Um, I'm gonna highlight those two first. Um, and they're really two thought leaders in uh, the history of economics and racism. When you look at the myths of the racial wealth gap, one of the things it points out is that uh, black head of households who have a post-college degree, their median wealth is less than white families who have some college experience. So if you just think of the cost of school right now, if you are paying to get two degrees, and someone who does not have a college degree, who only went to a few classes or was there for a few years, can now obtain more wealth than you. How good did that education treat you in the long run? How was that means to an end? What is the end? And I think as a community, we don't do a great job of defining what success is and what progress is. And I think in this podcast and as we go on, we need to start defining uh, the metrics in which we can define success. And so, yeah, Caleb, you said obtain and I'm, I'm thinking inherit because the life that you're living is completely different. And I think a lot of times we think about, you know, what people are generating for themselves, but we don't think about the uh, what they might inherit, number one. And then number two, you know, the amount of debt they might have to go into to to be in the same place because a family member couldn't step in and, and you know, offer financial assistance. And those numbers are really real. When we're talking about inheritance, we're talking about black people on average, you know, inheriting somewhere near $4,000, whereas uh, white families are inheriting closer to $100,000. So those disparities are night and day. And when you couple that with the fact that uh, wealth disparities are just growing in this country um, and, and wealth getting more and more consolidated at the top, people who've already had wealth um, or have been at least in the middle class for a while, you know, they have a better shot of being in that group that is, that's going to have a concentration of wealth. And the people who are who have been in poverty historically are having a very tough time just getting into the middle class. So it, again, when you you know when we come back to that original question that Caleb was asking about, you know, has has race 
have racial tensions gotten better, you know, at a surface level in terms of how we communicate with one another, definitely. But from a, from an equity standpoint, in a lot of ways we could say not so much. And so then that brings up the question that we were talking about, which is the probability. What's the probability of actually changing these things? And that's where I find a lot of fear because, you know, the more I look at these numbers, the more, you know, the more I see negative outcomes potentially. Yeah, the numbers prove that the probability of success for black America is just really low. Um, And Caleb said, you know, we as a community need to do a better job of defining what success is because that's partially true. Like we do get to college, earn a degree, and then there's like a sense of making it after that point. However, I kind of want to challenge it a little bit and, and ask, like, have we actually been exposed to success as a community in a way that's attainable um and i ask that because i look at the examples that people throw at us when when they talk about black success and they don't even actually relate to the average black american experience for instance you have barack obama who yes it is amazing that a black man made it to the seat of the president of the united of the united states however his experience and his upbringing does not reflect that of the average black American. And then you have Kamala Harris, who is technically in the same boat. Even though she went to Howard University, her upbringing still is very different from many black people that you would come across in today's society. So we have to ask ourselves, are these examples of progress in the black community if these people don't actually reflect the black community necessarily like yes their skin is black but did they have to deal with the same things that a lot of the black community deals with did you have to deal with predominantly black neighborhoods having some of the lowest achieving schools in the nation or did they have to deal with the gang violence that plagues our communities did you have to deal with any of that or are people only saying that you relate to the black community because your skin is brown yeah exactly uh we you know we always point to exceptionalism a lot of times to like discredit like the the severity of issues, right? So we'll have like people point to athletes and be like, oh yeah, you're so oppressed. Like you, you make millions of dollars and it's like, okay, yeah, think about how rare that is and the talent set that they had to have because show me, you know, show me another LeBron James. You can't. Um, and I can show you, you know, the, the physical gifts of, you know, pretty much any, you know, billionaire and they, and they look about the same. Right. So it, it's, it's the, the degree to which your circumstances have to change and you have to question like why so consistently the people who are at the top are coming from, um, systems that are not very traditional, um, in, in, in a black experience, you know, th- there's a level of privilege even within our own communities that certain people experience that others don't. And when you have a concentration of people who are ascending to the top, who are coming from experiences that don't necessarily um, resemble what the majority are having to deal with, you have to question, you know, how equitable is that system for everyone, right? So like the case that you were making with Kamala Harris, it's like, okay, yeah, she went to Howard, but she also studied in a predominantly white school when she was really young and then moved to Quebec for all of her schooling, I believe, from middle school to high, through high school. So, yeah, great. She had a, a, a black experience at a point where most black people aren't reaching, which is that, that college level education. And then we look at Barack Obama. On the other hand, it's like, OK, yeah, our first black president is a son of a uh, a Kenyan man who he didn't really get raised by. And that Kenyan man happened to be a Harvard educated person coming from a, a, a pretty well-to-do family. 
right? And then Barack, you know, was educated in Indonesia. He was educated in Hawaii. He's not coming from, you know, he's not coming from an inner city, but he, he, you know, politically and politically, he's trying to, you know, cater to this like, oh yeah, you know, I deal with the inner cities of Chicago esque, uh, you know, look, right? And so it, it kind of, it kind of becomes this like disingenuous um, thing to look at these people as, as role models, not to say that they haven't earned what they've, you know, where they've risen to because they've definitely worked hard, right? But using those as a model for other people when their experiences are so far apart right. is is something that shouldn't happen. And this is why I think that Tim Scott comment is so wrong. Not because, and I think I understand what he was getting at. He was saying, well, things are possible now for you. But that is totally not the metric for deciding if America is racist or not. Because you need a parent that went to Harvard and had these connections to get where Barack Obama got. You need that kind of stability. And it's not even talking about, especially black families, it's not even talking about, do you have this? Is could you have that in your family? Do you have the ability to have three generations of doctors in your family? Right. Most of the time, not. And if you do find black people like that, they're one in the few. And they will tell you, well, I've come from a long history of this. It's first of all, very rare to find, but we understand when you have that kind of support and backing years of success, not having to deal with America's exploitation that America used to get to where it's at. And I think we really need to deal with what exploitation means, what it means for us going forward and how hard it is to uh, be exploited and quickly gain ground on a group that is actively trying to better its own outcomes in terms of white society. So we finally get the, uh, the ability to go to, to school and get higher education. And in one or two generations, we are trying to bridge the gap between us and white society. We'll take out more student debt. You know, uh, we will pay more of our own money to go to school in hopes that we can close these gaps. And it just doesn't get into the fact that America is still racist because it hasn't come to terms with the fact that it exploited us and that is going to have a cumulative long lasting effect on our communities. Yeah. I mean, and that cumulative effect is, is so important. And when we're talking about probability, that's kind of where I want to start the conversation because we talk about things like compounding interest and like the, the benefit that that has when people are able to uh, grow their wealth over time. But you have to think about what happens to the people that aren't able to do that. And they, so they have, you know, a compounding level of uh, disadvantage. So it's not just, oh, that per like this group is more likely to come from um, a single parent household. Oh, this group is less likely to have a parent who's incarcerated. Oh, this group is less likely to have someone in their family with a college degree. In a lot of ways, it's all of those things compiled and compounding together. And so th these outcomes aren't, you know, just one thing you're avoiding. It's a field of landmines that you're trying to avoid just to, to climb up the social ladder. And as a society, you know, it's documented that we have a, a skewed perception of how easy it is to climb the social, the social ladder. Right. And, you know, to, to kind of support this point, Michael Cross and uh, Jackson Tan did a study on Americans' overestimation of social class and mobility for the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. And so they did a study that essentially looked at how people estimated uh, the, the ease with which you could move social classes. 
And so, so in these studies, they looked at the the chances for your upward mobility based on you know various um, various tasks that you completed. And so they looked at things like mobility through extra work. People overestimated how easy that was. People looked at things like upward income mobility. People greatly overestimated that. People looked at mobility through education. Overestimated. People looked at, you know, the, the chances of being a college student with, you know, with a lower tier of income um, and, and how far you could go in advance based on where you started. Overestimated. And so time and time again, we overestimate the likelihood for you to move social class. And it makes sense because, you know, it, it, the psychology of this, we're, we're often told in this country, you work hard, things are going to be better for you. You work hard. That's where your upward mobility comes in. And when we actually look at the numbers time and time again, we realize how much of how much of uh, status is predetermined. And the, you know, the country tells on itself because we'll look at things like the school to prison pipeline and they're starting to look at social demographics of kids in, you know, third grade. So it's like a lot of this stuff is preconditioned and we understand it and we use it. So we can't act surprised when we then learn that, you know, it's difficult to move social classes based on uh, factors outside of, you know, someone's control outside of a child's control. Those are going to have lasting long-term effects on those, on those children as they move into adulthood. Yeah, I think this is actually a really good time to tell a story, Joseph, because you, you mentioned the school-to-prison pipeline, and I know a lot of people hear that term and they might acknowledge what it means, but people don't really understand how detrimental it is specifically to the black community. And then when kids end up going from schools to prison, they just end up saying things like, oh, they should have made better choices or whatever. So uh, I'm going to tell a story. I'm uh, going to leave people's names out just for respect. Um, but I, so in high school, uh, ninth grade, my family moved to Augusta, Georgia. And um, I ended up getting real close to this this kid. It was like a little brother. Uh, so we ended up hanging out a lot. And turned out this kid uh, was hanging around some individuals that you might call sketchy. They were just into right. some illegal activity, you know. Mm -hmm. Um his mom wasn't around a lot only because she was working nonstop, like nonstop trying to provide for him and his little sister. So um, she sees that, you know, we're getting closer. And then she also sees that, you know, he's starting to get closer to some sketchy individuals. And she's like, all right, let me talk to Julian's parents. So she talked to my parents and asked if he could spend more time with us um hang out with me more and spend you know more nights over at our house or whatever so we end up hanging out a lot more we didn't even go to the same high school he ended up coming to basketball practice with me and stuff he was like attached to my hip um it was a good situation for him because honestly like we just started having more conversation about like the future like college beyond um and school in general, because that was something that he just wasn't really into. Mm -hmm. uh, however, he was, you know, and, and on top of that, he ended up spending a lot less time with the people that his mom was trying to take him away from. So that was great. However, he was um, a couple grades behind me. So it was time for me to go to college. And this is probably where I have one of my bigger regrets in life. I once I left Augusta, I did not really try to come back very often. Um, so when I left, 
you know, he kind of stopped hanging around my family. Um, and he was back in his old neighborhood 24-7 um, and back around the people that his mom was trying to keep him away from. So fast forward to a couple years uh, later, after I've been in college for a while, and he ended up getting into some legal trouble. Um, he ended up not finishing school. Um, and uh, maybe like a year after that, he ended up actually uh, being charged as an adult and going to prison. Um, and then, you know, maybe it was, let's see, that was like my junior year in college. And then I remember fresh out of grad school, um, I get a call from somebody back home saying, you know, uh, so-and-so was involved in a altercation um, in prison and he is now gone and mm. it like one it infuriates me um partially because I feel like I should have done more but a big part of it is you can try so hard to pull people out of a situation like that but if somebody's been exposed to something for 15 years of their life, two years isn't isn't going to gonna completely change the trajectory of their of the path of their life. It's just not, and that's a sad truth. And people don't understand that. So, like uh, we talked about this story before, and we had to ask the question: like, do you think you know some of the uh, activity that he got involved in was? simply a choice and I mean to a certain extent like everybody chooses but you have to ask yourself how many options were actually presented to him throughout his life you know did he actually think that there was any other way to to do anything or was what I was doing by going off to college not necessarily an attainable goal for him is that how he saw that yeah I mean that's that's a tough story um and I think, you know, a lot of times when we do these exercises, they become these like really highly theoretical things and people come into them with their own preconceived notions on like what they would do. Um, but, you know, like at, at one point, do you say like if this is a repetitive thing that's happening, like probably maybe, you know, most people wouldn't be able to choose uh, these like perfect outcomes for themselves. It's like a lot of times we detach the 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 completeness of a story so it'll be like well you should have just you know stuck to books or you know read more or done this that and the right. other and a lot of times it's like okay but have you ever been presented with those same situations sometimes it's not as simple as like oh well you know it, it's not like the it's not like um the the drug commercials where it's like oh don't do drugs kids like and it's a really easy like, just say no little like narrative that gets painted yeah just say no right it's like no there it's not just social pressure it could be physical pressure like you don't understand what might happen to someone um to to you know go against the grain of you know the community that they're in and, and we talk about proximity but probability comes in to say what what is the likelihood of you actually being able to escape these things unscathed by the community um, and, and be able to, to maintain a level of social status. And a lot of times, I think a lot of people come from communities where there's actually a reward system for them doing these things. Like for like, there's a reward system to you being able to like, Hey, like, you know, complete your studies, go to college, 
It'll be paid for. We'll figure it out. Or, or you won't be going into as much debt. It's feasible. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a lot of other people, it's like you can do all of those things, but if the systems aren't in play, you probably might have to still deal with those same people day in and day out. And it's like, when when are those choices going to catch up to you on the other end? Mm-hmm. So it's like people people aren't dumb. People understand their realities and their situations, and they respond in ways that they think are the best. Um, and, and I, you know, I think about sports a lot of ways in this, but you know, we we, we can come back to that. Yeah, what I want to add to this is a saying that black people say a lot that I think is applicable to to any minority group, but especially to black people. And that's the phrase that we have to work twice as hard to get half as far. And I I think black people are some of the most optimistic people on the planet. Um, And that's for a lot. Yeah, that's a, a great thing for a lot of times. But I can tell you, if you're working twice as hard to get half as far, you're going to lose that race. I can guarantee you, you're going to lose that race. Yeah. And we don't think about it like that. We think about, well, what is the mindset that I need for myself to get forward? And one of us might get forward with that mindset. And that is to be applauded. But if you replicate that across your family structure, you will see that it's very hard to have that kind of mindset and be successful cumulatively and that's how we have to start looking at this thing it is cumulative success that will bring you up to another social class so we have a situation in our community where a third of us of black men will go to college and about a third of us will end up in jail and that's just a recipe for uh dysfunction and we understand how that situation was created in the black community but if you think about it what is the probability that your family structure will be able to survive some of these people going to jail? What's the probability that not only will they be able to survive, but that somebody will be able to come in and give the next generation the tools in order to succeed while your white counterparts are, are, are benefiting from histories of uh, being in professional careers, being in political spheres, uh, being in high socioeconomic statuses. And we are trying to fight with basically our hands tied behind our back, telling ourselves that if we work twice as hard, we'll get half as far and we'll eventually make it. And we don't understand that the other people that we're running this race with are continuing to move and not at a half speed. They're continuing to move full steam ahead because they want to secure better outcomes for their children. And it's just something where we look at our community and we're not really looking at the probability of us getting to that next phase and being honest about where we're at as a community. Exactly. And and I think we, we don't have a perfect science for this, but we can't equate negatives and positives as offsetting either. So when you're saying Mm -hmm. a third of black people are going to prison at some point, that is much more detrimental than the positives that a third of people going to college provide because right. people going into a system that hardens them, that is debilitating. It's destructive. It's, it's a force of, of nature that, you know, can't just be corrected by somebody else went to college. It, it's going to create more points of confrontation and conflict than it's going, than, than someone simply going to college is going to be able to build. Right. So when you're introducing these two things into communities at the same rate, one is inevitably going to win and, it, and it's the worser of two. So we really have to 
do more to to build social foundations around people so those odds can start to look a lot better than they are. And yeah, Joseph, you're talking about how going to prison is even a, a bigger detriment to the community. Uh, I think the point I want to make on that is it's surprising to me the risks black people will take in order to get to that next level. And I think that's why the conversation about where we're at is so important, because you need to understand the risk you're taking and you need to understand that it's very difficult to be in the space that you're in and all of a sudden jump up to where your white counterparts are at. And so I think as a community, uh, what we do is when we get into the real world and we see what's actually going on, we end up taking these huge risks in order to get to where we want to go, whether that's investing one hundred and fifty thousand in your uh, in your education in order for you to succeed. Um, is that paying more money for your child's education, which black families do in order just to get a chance, just to get the opportunity, uh, you know, to get to that next stratosphere. And I think the the willingness to take risks and big risks is a staple of how black people are trying to make it in America, but actually how we are continually exploited in America, like I said before. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And, um, you know, we could talk about risk, whether it be criminal risks. It's 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 a risk to make money. It's a risk to try and, you know, better your situation. It's not just like, hey, let me just do these awful things because I have nothing better to do. Right. Um, We can talk about educational risks. When, you know, we're taking out larger loan amounts, trying to pay for school, trying to go about it, you know, as everyone's telling us is the right way to do it. But, you know, those systems just aren't equitable when we factor in wealth, um, wealth disparities, a long race. Uh, we could talk about, you know, athletic risks. You know, I said, you know, I said I wouldn't talk about sports earlier, but I'm gonna do it. So it's like the idea that, you know, you have all of these black athletes. Um, we have to think about the risk structure that's in that to to to. Um, you know, pursue these these careers in athletics or to pursue um, a college degree via an athletic scholarship right. is to put forth a level of uh, commitment, a level of time, a level of exposure that's high risk, high reward. Mm-hmm. And we don't see it as much, um, you know, at the same percentage with our white counterparts, because, you know, I like to think about it as like you're, you're, you're gambling. You're saying how much of how willing am I to make my put myself at risk and the risk would be not being able to you know hit the academic marks or hit those those other marks that tell us you know you can get somewhere between 50 to 100k every year year over year as a college you know as a college graduate versus saying you know I'm going to risk it solely on this athletic ambition because there's no way I could afford college um to the same degree if I don't get a full scholarship right. There's no way I can make millions of dollars if I, I, I don't do it athletically. So you say, okay, I'm going to put in the hours. I'm going to do all of these things. I'm going to work hard. I'm working hard to accomplish these things because you see that as the most viable path for you to make it out of your current situation. Mm-hmm. And a culture then, you know, is built around that. Mm-hmm. And so I think so much of the time we want to, you know, change history and say, well, you know, they could have done this. You do that, that, and that better. Like it'll be easier for you. And it's like, people are actually pretty good at evaluating what is the likelihood of me actually getting out of the situation that I'm presented. Right. We're resilient people. There's a reason we've lived this long. Mm -hmm. We, we, we figure those things out pretty well. And what we haven't done is had honest conversations on the vastly different 
chances, the vastly different opportunities for people. And Caleb, you talked about working twice as hard for half as much, you know, as you're saying of the day, but my saying of the day is, you know, I don't want to end up another statistic. And so that tells me something that tells me like, when we think about what is the path for black people, our statistic is often a negative connotation. Whereas for other people, you know, like we talk about medians, for other people, what's likely to happen for them, where the majority of people are going to fall, is a pretty decent net outcome. So the need to take more risk is diminished. So I, I would like to bolster our statistics. I would like to make, you know, the outcomes more positive more often. Yeah. So, Joseph, I want to follow up on your, your conversation on being a statistic. And I want to talk about how some statistics matter for some groups and not others. And really how government plays a huge role into getting people out of poverty and which people it decides to get out of poverty. So, for example, we don't talk about how our middle class was manufactured and the way it was manufactured. We talked about on previous podcasts and on our Instagram posts how the Homestead Act, uh, the Homestead Acts of the 1860s were some of the biggest land redistribution um, that ever happened in America. We talk about the National Housing Act, how that built suburbs for America, uh, you know, grants to to farmers, grants to business owners uh, to help them start their businesses and to prevent them from having to take huge risks to be profitable in America. And that's what the government has always done for a select group uh, for mostly white groups is to make sure that they are not risking too much to make it in America and providing them with equity, capital investment in order uh, for them to prosper and succeed in order for them to prosper and succeed. And that's something that the black community that's something that other minority communities are not necessarily accustomed to. And as black people, you are not only denied these opportunities, but you are actually exploited for the benefit of others and for their access to opportunity. And so in closing, for me, I just think it's important that we focus on the racial wealth gap as a marker or emblem of how uh, the effects of racism are taking place today, because it is a cumulative look at what's happening in your community. You can't be wealthy if the people next to you don't have wealth also. This is a cumulative nature. And I think as a community, as groups, as uh, people in social justice fields, we need to start looking at it uh, because oppression isn't individual. And especially in this country, it's not individual. And we need to stop stop talking about it as an individual topic. Yeah. So I, I think we want to wrap up and I do want to you know get at my major takeaway from this from this conversation. And I think. What I really want to make a link to is the idea that equal access and equal opportunity are these buzzwords that we hear all the time when it comes to social ladder um, or, or social mobility. Uh, we talk about, you know, education, there's equal access to that and equal opportunity. Uh, we talk about the ability to finance a home, there's equal access and equal opportunity. But we see time and time again that those things are impacted by our surrounding communities um, and, and what's available from that standpoint, not just as an individual, but as a collective. And so we can't remove ourselves from the collective odds in a lot of ways Um Unless we're from these, you know, communities like we talked about with Barack and, and Kamala earlier, where it's like where there isn't necessarily an attachment to a, a quote unquote traditionally black community. Uh, 
where you kind of find yourselves outside of the norms of that. And then you can kind of climb up. You can make, uh, you know, more of a more of a segue out of those things because our, our social communities as black people are still very much interconnected. I'm going to go and get my hair cut with black people. I'm going to go, you know, to church and worship with black people. I'm going to find myself in social gatherings, you know, no matter how wealthy I am, that stuff relates back to race so heavily. So I just want us to be cognizant of the fact that we can't just escape these these things that affect parts of our community um, just because we've, you know, moved up slightly socially. And we shouldn't necessarily be expected to either. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is especially important in the capitalist society that we live in. Uh, there's only so many people at the top who actually have the resources and the freedom to take certain risks. And we're talking about how it takes risk to move up in these different social classes. And aside from risk, people can actually use their wealth to improve their odds. And then the people at the very top can actually use their wealth to keep everyone else away from where they're at in life. Only some people have the opportunity to use their wealth to essentially improve their odds. And yeah, Julian, the odds is an important conversation. And I want to bring this back to a point I made early in the episode, uh, talking about Tim Scott's claim that America is no longer racist or isn't racist. And I think my response and my final point on this is show me the amends that America has made. Don't tell me that we've just progressed. Show me the active steps as we talked about in our first episode. What are the active steps America has taken? Like we haven't even got the same social programs as white America. GI Bill, Homestead Act, National Housing Act. These things are stuff that we need in our community, let alone answering for the history of slavery and Jim Crow. So it's not good enough to say that, you know, it's been some time, therefore America is no longer racist. You have to show active steps. And I think what we try to show you today is that what happens to communities is collective, not individual. So the amends then has to be collective and it's not something that we can individually pull ourselves out of. So thank you for listening to another episode of the United Amends Project. Please be sure to subscribe, rate and review. Uh, we really appreciate all of the great feedback we've been getting on Instagram. Um, also, you know, on Apple Podcasts in the review section. Uh, we really love those five stars too. Um, and we will uh, see you next episode. Peace and love. Peace and love.